Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not, has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So heads up, today is going to be a particularly uh, heavy day. Just buckle up. Just prepare yourself. There is a lot in that passage that we're going to get to and a lot that we are not, but here's where we're going to start. So in a time when, for many, claims of objectivity uh, and truth uh, or claims of truth are considered oppressive, uh, when in a time when lies and misinformation are often treated as fact when curated social media feeds tend to bolster our predetermined perspectives, truth and claims of truth get complicated. Uh, In many ways, the battle of our day, like in many times past, is actually a fight for truth. Yet truth, more than ever, seems impossible to define. But for Christians, truth is rooted in a knowledge um, of a God who is the holder of truth, who is the source of all truth. But as Christians hold to that idea, tensions come. Because when when one holds that uh, God is truth, truth that reflects the fullness of his character and his will, what inevitably happens is that Christians will end up and should never be uh, fully aligned with the ideologies or philosophies of the world. In fact, when Christians hold to God being the source of all truth, Christians should never be categorizable uh, by the world's categories. And as a result, Christians will never be fully and completely accepted in any particular stream of thought. In fact, we will end up at times being viewed as Christians. You'll be viewed as overly conservative or overly progressive in much of our modern-day nomenclature. I remember one particular week, uh, it was an interesting week that I had, where on a Tuesday, I was told that I was oppressively conservative and that I was upholding white patriarchy. 
And then on a Thursday, I was told that I'd been co-opted by a liberal agenda and I sounded like a Marxist. It's been a really weird few years. Uh, but in a world where there are so many competing voices who claim to hold truth, claims that are often diametrically opposed to one another, we are in need of a people who will break through the noise and refuse to be co-opted and deceived by, in the words of Peter, the false prophets of our day, the heresy that they claim. Now today we continue our series of public people looking at the church as a distinct community of people, looking at first and second Peter. And today we consider that as a distinct people, Christians are to be a people of truth. To see this, let's consider how we must all recognize, first, the presence of heretical false prophets, second, the deception of those false prophets, and then finally, the arrival of truth, okay? So first, the presence of heretical false prophets. Uh, look at verse one, it says this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false, prof false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. All right, let's take a look at a few things there. Not everything in that passage is immediately intuitive to us. What exactly first is heresy? Well, in a, in a word, uh, or in that word rather, um, often what's being described is ideas that are a divergence or a separation from what's considered to be the norm, considered what's, uh, what is true. Uh, and oftentimes when this word is used uh, throughout the Bible, it does tend to uh, be ideas that are of a, one, a person's personal interest. They tend to be self-serving ideas. And it's a divergent from, divergence from truth or what, again, most would claim and understand to be true. So before we can actually determine what heresy is, which is a divergence from truth, we need to get a sense of what we are actually rooting that idea of truth in, which is where this notion of false prophets comes in. Prophets were those who uh, claimed to hold truth. They claim to speak for God, which most uh, would agree, Christian or not, that if a God exists, that God would, by definition, be truth. Right? You don't actually have to be a Christian to believe that. Many conceptions of God believe that God, however one conceives of God, to be true. But for a false prophet, in actuality, their claims are supposedly from God, but actually are antithetical to God's truth. Now, for the Christian, this standard of truth is the God of the Bible, the God revealed to us in Scripture and through Jesus. Now, I realize, all of that said, there's a couple of assumptions, assumptions that are being made there, specifically making an assumption that there is a God in whom all truth is rooted, and that this God is actually a knowable God who reveals truth to us. I can't, by any means, get fully into arguments uh, of for and existence of a God, but let me simply just say this, that if we reject the notion of God, we need to then wrestle with how we know that anything is true. And what do we anchor our understanding of reality and human flourishing and even morality I mean, many struggle to articulate an answer to that question. And as a result, in modern times, there's usually one of two things that people end up landing on as they try to wrestle with truth and how we can know truth. One of two things typically 
will either be empirical evidence or self-discovery. Most of the time, people are going to land in one of those two camps as the, the place where truth can be known. Let me speak to them very quickly and insufficiently because uh, there's so much that could be said. But consider this idea of empirical evidence or scientific inquiry. You know, in modern day, it seems like scientific inquiry would be objective and therefore trustworthy. But while empirical evidence, scientific inquiry rightly point us to how things are, they can never actually tell us how things ought to be. It's outside of its scope. It doesn't have the tools to show us how things ought to be, only how things are, which is why pure scientific uh, inquiry cannot answer some of the most weighty questions concerning purpose and love and even objective morality. And so as a result of that, we try and we root our, our understanding of truth elsewhere. And often the other place that we tend to root our sense of truth is in self-discovery. That is, my truth is my truth, rooted in my own self-definition of what is true. But self-discovery is no place to anchor truth either, because inevitably there are going to be those who come to you and reject your truth and instead prefer their own truth. And at that moment, who is to say who is right? I mean, we can claim to have a true position, but if our basis of truth is rooted in our own understanding of truth, there are 8 billion different opinions about what truth is. But if we really want to know objective truth, the source of that truth must exist outside of ourselves. Otherwise, we should at least have the courage to say that there is no real truth beyond my own conceptions of it. And therefore, even my most dearly held beliefs are nothing more than opinions and are really only valid to the extent that I believe them to be true. And someone else's opinions, even if I find their opinions abhorrent, their opinion is, is valid as mine is, because it's bo both of them are simply rooted in our own conceptions of it. And we need to be okay with that. But what we can't do is we can't call it true, like truly true, capital T, true. Because if there is a capital T truth that exists, that truth must be universal, transcendent, applicable to all. And any claim that misaligns with that idea of truth is not ultimately true. Now again, back to Christians. <laughs> Christian belief is that there is a universal and transcendent truth, and that that truth is of the God of the Bible. And anything, any claim that misaligns with him as truth and the purposes that he reveals in his words, it's those things that are the heresies that Peter is speaking of. And those who proclaim those misalignments, who claim to know truth and yet reject the source of truth, are the false prophets that Peter is speaking of. Prophets whose claims, according to Peter, lead to destruction. So all that said, what then are those claims? Right? How do we know if what we are hearing or experiencing are heresies? Well, that brings us to the deceptions of the heretical false prophets. Uh, in our passage, Peter actually addresses three ways that heresies uh, tend to be revealed. And I think that for many, 
When we think about heresy, we do tend to think about heresy in relation to who God is. You know, things like it's a heresy to claim that God is not a triune God, that Jesus is not God, that he did not actually resurrect. All of those things are absolutely what we think about when we think about heresy, right? What the Bible says is true, diverging from those things. But what's interesting is what Peter addresses as, char- as the characteristics of heresy are not these ideas. Instead, what we see is that heresy and the claims of heresy here actually describe more about the conduct of the false prophets and how they will actually tap into some of our greatest desires and longings. And as a result, these heresies will not actually seem like heresies. In fact, the words of these false prophets will seem like they should be true because false prophets and heresies will rarely reject truth completely. Instead, they will either knowingly or unknowingly distort aspects of truth. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses two and three. It says that many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Now, let me just say a couple of quick things so that we've got some context. When it says depraved conduct, that word that's being translated depraved conduct in the New Testament uh, is a word uh, that speaks of embracing our uncontrolled passions, and it's often connected to sexual desire and sometimes used uh, with uh, drunkenness as well. It's living in such a way that our desires are centralized in our lives. Other translations translate that word as sensual desires. Okay, so with that in mind, one of the ways that we know that we're being deceived by false prophets and their heresies are by considering what Peter says in verses two and three, by considering our understanding of sensual desires, greed, which he uh, speaks of in verse three, and exploitation. Now, we've said this before, but time and time again, the Bible often emphasizes three major sins under which so many other sins fall. Often, what we're going to see over and over again is the Bible speak to sex or sensual desires, money or greed, we see here, and power or exploitation. This is what we're seeing here. And Peter is, this, this is exactly what Peter is emphasizing. Across time, one of the ways that we can know if we are aligned with truth or if we have fallen for the heresies of our day is to assess what we believe about sex, money, and power. And each of them are worth addressing. And getting back to where we started, when Christians are most informed by biblical truth, they will be, for some, oppressively conservative in their views on some of these things, or aggressively progressive on some of these things. And in the language of modern discourse, Christians will be viewed as conservative oppressors or liberal Marxists, depending on where you land on some of these topics. I say all of that just to say, here's where we can start buckling up. Because what we're going to do is I'm going to try to very quickly give a biblical understanding of sex, money, and power so that we can all begin assessing where we might be landing. If we hold to truth or if we've been deceived by the false prophets of our day. Let's consider sex first. So from a biblical perspective, by God's good design, he created humans as male and female, equal in dignity and value, but distinct and different in roles and functions. 
as a means of complementarity, rooted in faithfulness and self-giving love. He established marriage as a glimpse of his relationship between himself and the church. And within that covenant relationship, he provides an act of love, sex, that emphasizes faithfulness, self-giving love, and his gender diversity and complementarity. That act of love is so powerful that normatively, it has the power to create life, new life that is then welcomed into that faithful, self-giving covenant relationship. And so this powerful act of sex that binds individuals together and has the power to create life is only to be had in the context of that covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. That, my friends, from a biblical perspective, is the capital T truth about sex, sexuality, and gender. And any conception of sex outside those parameters is heresy promoted by false prophets and is rooted not in truth, but in the words of Peter, rooted in our sensual desires. And as I've said, sexuality, right, all of these topics, but sexuality in particular, ends up tapping into some of our greatest desires and longings because the alternative perspectives, they often don't feel like heresy. But conceptions of gender or sexuality or sexual practice or sexual habits or sexual desire that do not align with God's creative intention for us to be male and female with sex and desire confined to faithful, self-giving love in marriage between one man and one woman, male and female, is antithetical to truth. And as I said, for some, what I just said sounds oppressively conservative. And yet it is truth nonetheless. And just really quickly to that oppressively conservative notion, as a side note, the Christian perspective on sexuality historically actually has provided the, one of the greatest accountabilities for our sexual practices because it demands far more than what our culture has been able to come up with. The best our culture has been able to come up with when it comes to sexual practice is consent, which is like non-negotiable, but also like pretty low, keeps that bar very, very low. Because even in consent, exploitation happens all the time. And over the course of history, the Christian sex ethic has actually produced liberation from coercive and unjust uh, sexual practices in countless societies because it roots one of the most powerful acts that our bodies have, not in desire, but in self-giving love. That said, I also want to just say that I recognize that sexuality is one of the most delicate and personal topics that we can discuss. And so on the one hand, Christians must stand for truth about sex and sexuality, but also must recognize that our sexuality can be a very real struggle. And as a result of the brokenness of our bodies and the injustices and sins of others that are inflicted on us, our sexual desires can be a difficult aspect of life to bring under submission to truth. And that struggle, that challenge, is something that we want to have deep compassion, deep grace, deep love for the sexual brokenness. Those that struggle with, all of us in various ways, struggling with sexual brokenness, especially for those whose sexual desires 
are rooted, are not rooted rather, in any conscious decisions that they have made. That's sex. Money. The Bible has a lot to say about money. First, we know that uh, money is not inherently sinful or wrong to have money. But we, as we uh, assess the power that money has over us, we do need to take into, co into consideration and into account the way that we interact with money and the way that we pursue money. You know, when, when Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying that money is problematic per se, but that wealth has a way of becoming a functional God in which we find our hope. When Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions, he's not making the case that we all need to be living in poverty, but rather that it would be better for you to live without possessions if it means keeping your soul, in the words of Matthew 16, not forfeiting your soul. And frankly, just as a reminder, you don't need to have money to forfeit your soul for money. The pursuit of an obsession with money is just as counter to God's intention for us, his purposes for us. And so what is God's purpose for money? A couple of things. First, work and the resources that it provides are actually part of God's provision for us, for our livelihood. Right? This, this is in part what Paul is arguing in, in Second, uh, Second Thessalonians 3 when he says that the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So if you're able to work, work so that you can have the resources, the money needed to live. Now that, that position is a biblical position and it sounds pretty conservative, right? That's a very conservative perspective. But we also have made work and the pursuit of resources functional gods in our lives. And our economic system, capitalism, though one of the most consistent generators of wealth, also more than maybe any other economic system, normalizes, supports, and rewards the idolatry of money, an idolatry that pervades every aspect of our lives. The heresies of our capitalistic prophets lead us, prophets as in P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, <laughs> our capitalistic prophets lead us to an obsession with money and possession. Our capitalistic uh, norms often pervert justice and equality. Justice and equality that Christians should be for. There is a problem when, as an example, in the most medically advanced nation, it's the wealthy who get the best health care and the poor often do without. It's a problem when the wealthy are less likely to spend time in jail for the exact same crimes as the poor because they could afford the bail, they could hire good lawyers, and maybe, maybe even at times pay for influence. There's something wrong with the 50 richest Americans being worth more than the poorest 165 million combined, all while claiming that if people just worked hard enough, they could make it. Our economic system, capitalism, is idolatrous, deeply flawed, and often causes injustice. And while Christians might sound incredibly conservative when they insist that people must work, Christians can very quickly sound too progressive 
when they show the idolatry of the system, a system that is often not fair, equitable, and just. It is that system by design that is so often making us camels trying to thread a needle. And in the Bible, right, when we consider how money so often can become this functional God, what is the cure? What is the way that we resist making it a God? One simple word, generosity. God gives us resources to provide for ourselves and through our generosity to provide for others. The antidote to money becoming a functional God is to give it away. God calls us to be a generous people. We have talked about this. We talk about this all the time. But it's the generosity of God's people that is the main way that God provides for the work that's being done all, not just in our church, but amongst all others who are doing kingdom work. So I won't get into the weeds of all of that, but I do ask us all to challenge ourselves. How are we generous? What is our giving and our generosity like? I mean, are we truly being generous? Right? Are we truly being sacrificial in our giving? We talked about this last week in our, our town hall meeting, but am I giving in such a way that my lifestyle has to change because of what I'm giving away? That's the antidote to resist this God of money that's so often the false prophets of heretical ideas today would assume is something that we should pursue when in reality we should be giving away. Lastly, power. The Bible has a lot to say about power and the heresies that flow from an obsession with it. And much like money, our, our perspective on and our use of power says everything about whether we are rooted in truth or whether we have bought into idolatry and the heresies of the day. For example, the Bible speaks a lot about personal responsibility and our need to control ourselves, to live righteously, to live wisely, to live justly, to reject oppressive, coercive, manipulative practices. And for some, it's important to say that we actually don't take seriously enough our own responsibility in making something of our life, that we do have a bit of a power in making good decisions in life. And what I mean is that there are some that are too quick to blame the power structures that exist out in the world and not quick enough to take personal responsibility for how life tends to go. That's truth. Sounds pretty conservative as well. But the Bible also shows us how institutions and structures and systems and governments, as a result of being created by sinful humans, can themselves become sinful and oppressive. Almost the entire prophetic tradition of the Old Testament is the prophets confronting the ways that the nations have been purveyors of idolatry and injustice through abuses of power. Power and the pursuit of power will lead to injustice and oppression, not just at an individual level, but also through entire systems. You know, in our individualistic, capitalistic Western world, we are so adverse, so often, to addressing misuses of power, you know, at, at a systemic level. We're so adverse to it that too often we assume that any attempt at confronting power struggles is Marxism. And in contemporary times, it's quite frankly wild to me 
that confronting systemic abuses of power just devolve into accusations of critical theory or critical race theory or Marxism. I've spent a lot of time, for what it's worth, <laughs> spent a lot of time learning about Marxism and its progeny. I have no interest in advocating for any of those things, in large part, just as a bit of a side note, in large part because they don't properly do the job of correcting or assessing power structures. There's a reason why Marxism has always devolved into new forms of oppression. The oppressed will become oppressors if given power because the destructive nature of power is not reserved for any one particular people group. It's a human issue. But that said, we don't need to uh, embrace critical theory or Marxism to understand that power can actually become quite oppressive through systems and structure. That power, unjust power, can be woven in through all different levels of society. And when Christians recognize and then map the uses and abuses of power, when Christians speak about how we need to dissect and even dismantle our systems and institutions that allow injustice, we're not being Marxist, we are being biblical in our understanding of power, recognizing how power works. And cumulatively, the false prophets of heresy will make us think that everything is the result of oppressive systems or that nothing is the result of oppressive systems. What we believe about money, sex, and power reveals much about the extent to which we've likely been deceived by the false prophets of heresy today because the Bible is comprehensive in its understanding of these main issues, which is why the Bible is constantly addressing them. Now, with all of that said, in a world of such idolatry, in a constant bombardment of deceptions, confusing ideas, how can we know what truth is? How can we know if we're actually aligned with truth? Well, truth is actually not something that we can ultimately discover or attain, but rather it's something that comes to us. And when we are captivated by, when we pursue, when we see truth coming to us, it's then and only then that we begin to have the framework to know how best to push against the false prophets and the heresies of the day. Let's look at, finally, the arrival of truth. So in the first sentences of the book of John, uh, the apostle brings to us the concept of the logos. Um, in Greek philosophy, the logos was the logic of the universe. It was the orientating truth behind all philosophies and theologies and knowledge. This is how the, the Greeks imagined it. And so to grasp the logos was to understand ultimate truth. And here's what John says about that idea of the Logos. He says that in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The Logos was present in the beginning. He goes on to say that through the Logos, all things were made. Without the Logos, nothing was made that has been made. He goes on to say that the Logos was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, ultimate truth, the logic of the universe, the power and the light of creation is the Logos. 
And how did John then speak of that Logos? Well, he says later in chapter, in chapter one, he says, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He goes on to say that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John here is making the case that Jesus Christ is the embodiment in the flesh truth. That Jesus is, is not the one who points us toward the Logos or toward truth, but rather that he is the truth. In Jesus' words, Jesus says of himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. All other prophets, all other world, uh, world uh, religion leaders, all other philosophers have all said, listen to me, and I will point you toward the truth. But Jesus comes and he says, I am the truth. I am the logic of the universe in the flesh. And I speak as such. You know, the prophets of our day tell us to hear and listen to our inner voice, to follow our hearts to discover truth. But you remember what the, the prophet Jeremiah says about our hearts? He says that the, the heart is deceitful above all things. So Jesus comes and he says, don't listen to your heart. It's deceitful constantly spewing the, the, the heresies of the false prophets, Jesus says the truth, as the truth, as the Logos. He says that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So in a world where ultimate truth seems debatable, a world where heresy pervades nearly every facet of life, where false prophets say that um, we must listen to them, often their words pulling us from what God would intend, producing chaos. In the midst of that chaos, we need an anchor in that storm, and Jesus Christ is that anchor. But lastly, not only does Jesus reveal himself as the logic and the truth of the cosmos, he also reveals the consequences of rejecting truth. Look at uh, verse 9 of our passage. Says that uh, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Just quick, our rejection of the very logic of, of the universe, it should be logical to us that to reject the logic of the universe would obviously be a path toward destruction. And we all, at times, are deceived by the alluring and yet destructive words of the false prophets that would pull us away from trusting in the true logic of the universe, Jesus Christ. But because of his great love for us, Jesus rescues us from coming judgment. And that rescue is the cross of Christ. I mean, how remarkable that the embodied logic of the universe goes to the cross to rescue us. It is an act of love. It is an act of mercy that proves the extent to which that he is truly worthy, truly trustworthy of our full and complete faith in him as truth. And so my friends, my encouragement would be that as we look to Jesus and as we know his word, it's there where we will discover rootedness and anchoring amidst the chaos that is around us. And Christian, as a distinct people, we must be a people that break through the noise so much noise in our culture today to break through the noise 
holding to what is true, which is a God who is the source and rootedness of all truth, who reveals himself in the flesh in Jesus. May our eyes be upon him and him alone as we navigate this confusing world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a knowable God, that you are the source of all truth, and yet we can know you. And we can know you because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, the, the logic of the universe coming in the flesh, coming close to us, near to us, and also going to the cross in order to deal with the consequences of our rebellion, to deal with the ways that we have too often prioritized our sensual desires, our greed, our pursuits of power. All of those things have been placed on a Savior who bears the weight of that burden on the cross. So would you help us by your Spirit to look upon him May he be our anchor in the storm. May he be the one that we fix our eyes upon in the midst of the chaos of this world. God, we ask that your spirit would also give us wisdom and how best to navigate some of the most complicated issues of our day around sex and money and power, where there are so many competing voices that all claim to have uh, truth that are also confident in what they claim, but can also so often be confident voices of heresy. Give us wisdom to see through all of that, to see your truth. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.